On this morning's show, we are joined by Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. And by Martin Henneke, head of Asia Investment Advisory, St. James's Place Wealth Management. Good morning, Martin. Good morning. A pleasure to be back. Good to have you on. So, um, we've got the Hong Kong budget being presented this week on Wednesday. Um, let's start by asking, what do you guys want to see in it? And I'll start with you, Andrew. Well, I don't think there's an awful lot we can do. I mean, the, the, the main thing here is going to be on the property, you know, the, the, the restrictions that they put on when they thought the market was getting spicy. But apart from that, there's, there's not a huge amount I think they can really offer the people. I mean, it, it's as, uh, as he outlined yesterday, you know, it's uh, still a tough market out there. And Martin? Yes, I'm not really all that much into politics. The financial markets already are quite complicated in their own right. So but let me just comment from an investor's perspective, uh, perspective on Hong Kong briefly then. And that's that I think it's actually, you know, potentially one of the uh, most depressed and most overlooked markets with the highest upside potential from where we stand now, regardless <clears throat> of you know how exactly the budget will be coming out and that's based on record low valuations we are seeing um, very strong corporate buybacks in january uh, we have seen the three-year high since record has been taken in terms of corporate buybacks um, and that came in at 2.6 billion us dollar uh, you have seen a lot of measures obviously from the government in china and it's it's reached the point pretty much where it's almost like the fable about the shepherd who cries wolf too much when china announces a new stimulus measure nobody is listening anymore but that might just be when things sort of um <clears throat> potentially turn around certainly when you look at valuations in the united states on a high level we think that EM versus United States, there are some good opportunities. Nobody wants to hear about it now because US has done so well, but there's a, a risk of falling into this recency bias trap. So we think there's great opportunities in EM, and we certainly wouldn't overlook Hong Kong or Hong Kong listed China stocks and China. In fact, we would sort of warn some investors have been asking, should we shift all China, all Hong Kong into India? Because obviously that's a no brainer because it's booming. But valuations discrepancy has reached a record high, so we strongly suggest to remain diversified there as well. Okay. Andrew, you touched on the property side of it. Um, it seems everyone is focused on this one sector, which is the property sector, but there's a lot more problems in Hong Kong. I mean, even from an investor point of view, investor confidence in Hong Kong is, is pretty sharp. So I don't, I mean, would just ha taking some moves on the property sector really affect any of that? Will that bring some investor confident back, confidence back, Andrew? I don't, I don't think it really will. I mean, as, as you say, there are a lot of problems. And, and most of it is the fact that, you know, a lot of the index is very closely tied to what we're seeing in China. Uh, and there's a huge lack of confidence in, as, as Martin was just saying, is the fact that the, the Chinese government has kept announcing or you know, giving lip service to a number of policies, but people haven't actually seen any, any real change on the ground. And that's, that's the problem. I mean, a lot of those share buybacks were from the tech side and the e-commerce companies. You know, um, they have made money, but you know, they, they, they need to get it back to shareholders as, as quickly as they can. So they've been doing buybacks. A lot of the, uh, the consumer companies, though, are still suffering uh, because the Chinese consumer is very scared about the outlook. Um, and a lot of that comes down to, you know, Beijing policies as far as 
uh, going back as far really as made in made in China 2025, which it announced you know, back in 2015. Um, it's it's scared the rest of the world, and the rest of the world is realigning its supply lines, and that's hurting the economy. And then, Martin, you talk about valuation discrepancies, but valuation discrepancies are there because of the performance of the economies and the performance of the, each of these countries. And as Andrew just pointed out, there's a severe lack of confidence in China, which is a big reflection, or which is being, ref, being reflected in the Hong Kong market. So apart from just saying, OK, valuations are low, what's actually going to drive Hong Kong higher or China higher? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a really good one. So firstly, I agree with Andrew that, you know, a lot of the confidence in Hong Kong will stem from China. Even, you know, the local stock market, rough, uh, about 50% is mainland China stocks. So in terms of the consumer, yes, absolutely. This consumer um, hesitation, this consumer doubt um, and the whole confidence picture, that's, you know, one of the things that's holding China back. But when you look at family bank balances since 2020, when COVID started, they are up 65%. So the spending power is there. If that means incentive by the government, um, at some point there is probably potential to turn around. Two more quick points. The economy isn't necessarily always a reflection of the stock market. The stock market often is anticipatory in nature which means that it could you know move up from lows but before you you see any strong uh, recovery necessarily there's a piece of research that was done in 2014 by london business school they actually found an inverse correlation between economic growth rates uh, and the stock market so that weakness alone doesn't mean you can't see the rebound last point i just want to link japan and china here for a second because you asked what could lead to this turnaround you know apart from valuations so um, Japan obviously um, posted a 34-year high last week. And um, I just read a notice here from actually exactly one year ago, February 22, 2023, almost exactly. So it says here a headline of an article, Tokyo versus buried notice, sports surges in cheap Japan stocks. And that was all about the government incentivizing uh, higher dividends, more shareholder friendliness and buybacks, etc. And you have had in December last year, another buried notice. I read the headline here, regulator urges Chinese companies to boost dividend buybacks. That's, you know, to me, yet another thing that could turn sort of things around. By no means am I saying go all in on just one market. We always like diversification, but you have a lot of people now asking for um, global indices ex-China, EM ex-China, and, you know, we, you, you know, that could well be a market where you might see the highest turnaround potential. And don't forget, it's actually in PPP terms, it's already the largest economy in the world. Um, and, you know, every market has its pros and cons, particularly the more popular ones might have higher correction rest from where you see things now. And we do think as an asset class, equities generally do have um, do have potential and also do have potential not just from a growth perspective but also to protect from inflation which i think is still something that investors should be watching out for even we have seen a bit of a drop back last year okay i'm going to ask both of you this question i mean equity markets have actually had pretty strong start to the year hong kong and china have had a pretty strong start to the chinese new year um but if we look at the bond markets they're kind of signaling that there could be trouble ahead so what do we follow? Do we follow the bond markets or do we follow the equity markets? Traditionally, people will look at the bond markets for guidance. Yet over the last couple of years, that's not necessarily been the case because, I mean, bond markets were predicting recession early last year and that didn't happen. 
Um, so is, it, is this another false uh, showing from the bond market or is this something we've got to be starting to be concerned about? And I'll start with you, Andrew, on that one. Well, I think the bond market was was caught out because it was trying to uh, to bully the Fed into moving rates quicker than the Fed was prepared to do it. Uh, and even now, where the Fed is saying that you know it, it may cut three times this year, um, the, the bond market is indicating that it expects more cuts than that. Um, and I think that a lot of that is the fact that a lot of people operating the bond market, which, as you say, is historically the smart money, they just haven't experienced inflation before. Um, and, ho- you know, and hence, you know, it's something they've only looked at in textbooks and haven't realized the reality on the ground is, is often very different. So I think at the end of the day, you know, the bond market reacts to what the central banks are saying. So I think people have got to keep a, you know, a close eye on what the central banks say rather than necessarily the bond market. Martin? I would add another perspective on that in terms of paying closer attention to what central bankers are saying because uh, one factor I think that a lot of people are missing also when you talk about bonds and what bonds signal and what bond investors should be worried or not about is that you have really high sovereign debt and budget deficits in a number of major, major countries. The U.S. has projected by the IMF to have 65 to 8% budget deficit over the next four years. You might be aware that um, when the Eurozone was formed, there was a rule nobody could have a budget deficit above 3% because anything higher was considered to be potentially unsustainable. And um, that is actually one of the reasons for what I mentioned earlier, that that consciousness that inflation might still be a risk to watch out for. And what makes me sort of invest personally and for investors looking for advice for the medium to long term who can tolerate a good degree of volatility to to look to allocate a major portion of one's assets to inflation-proof holdings. Mind you, I think the bond market is, of course, better value now than it was um, in, you know, before 2022, the shakeout. Um, But ultimately... Again, depending on um, time frame and volatility tolerance, uh, I would think in the long run, um, sticking with inflation-proof asset might yield the best returns. Okay. And um, moving on to the flavor of the day, and it's AI, and NVIDIA's uh, earnings just blew everyone out of the water. And we see it top $2 trillion in terms of market cap. So are we now just going to look at AI. Is AI still the story for the year? Or is this kind of a sign that we might be starting to top out, given the fact that there just seems to be quite a, quite a huge amount of exuberance into the AI sector? Um, again, I'll start with you, Andrew. Well, I think we've got to worry about two things. One is AI and, and how, how they're going to make it profitable. I mean, we're finding you know, there are a lot more costs involved in AI from uh, energy perspective, from cooling these data centers, from uh, modern technology, and the other thing you know is is you know the central banks are still very important. You know, if if the central banks don't cut rates, if AI isn't as um, um, isn't as much of an additive as people are hoping, then a lot of those valuations out there are looking very stretched, and and it's it's concentrated in in a number of you know a small number of uh, stocks at the moment, which I think is another concern. Um, and I think as Martin was alluding to earlier, you know, it's being diversified. Uh, which is the key protector for uh, for a lot of investors. Martin? Yeah, fully agree. Um, you know, one has to be more careful now with valuations, perhaps looking a bit more stretched. That's, but that's not to say one couldn't have some exposure in some areas. Maybe, again, one, one thing to reiterate my earlier message. Uh, when you look at markets and sectors and, and AI, one thing I could say, like, in, in emerging markets, actually, you see 
um, increasingly some some areas being industry leaders in some of the new economy um, uh, 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 well sectors that have really good growth perspectives, and yet you see valuations um, that might be closer to what the U.S. would have been before that strong rally. So, um, so again, we wouldn't exclude that. And if one really wants to be looking for any particular new economy sectors, maybe looking for opportunities in emerging markets that might not be trading at low valuation, but at least at normal, reasonable valuation. And you know, if it wasn't for that shake or that you had seen. Some of those markets there, they would already be uh, uh, much higher. So I think, again, particularly in China, it gives people uh, another shot right now at some of those potential industry leaders in the future. Okay, Andrew, I've got about 20 seconds left. So if I can, five seconds each. Um, What should people be looking out for this week? Well, I think we've got the US data. We've got earnings continuing. Um, and I think hopefully we, we, we'll start seeing some news from China that actually does give us an indication of what the new policy is going to be for the rest of the year. And Martin, in five words or less? <laughs> yeah, hopefully stabilisation in China, but don't look only at the short term too much. Don't get carried away with weekly news. Focus on the long term is better. All right. Well, um, that's all I have time for. That was a great chat as usual. Um, so I'd like to thank both Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense, and Martin Haneke, head of Asia Investment Advisory at 